Ramadan is the most sacred time of year for Muslims. It's a month of fasting, spiritual devotion and charity, and it's also a time to strengthen ties between friends, family and community. But this year, Ramadan looks very different. COVID-19 means there are no social gatherings to break the fast together and no communal prayers. Mosques, usually filled with worshippers this month, have closed their doors. Even Islam's holiest sites of Mecca and Medina in Saudi Arabia are currently under curfew. Muslims face a strange new reality. For the very first time, I, along with many of the world's 1.8 billion Muslims, will spend Ramadan in lockdown. I'm Ramona Ali, and you're listening to Things Unseen, the programme for people of all faiths and none, and for those who think there is more to life than the material world. For this Ramadan special, I'm joined by the Muslim scholar Abdul Hakim Murad, also known as Dr Tim Winter. He's a lecturer in Islamic studies at the University of Cambridge and the Dean of Cambridge Muslim College. We've invited him to shed some light on how to make the best of Ramadan during a global pandemic. Abdul Hakim Murad, welcome and many thanks for your time today. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to our encounter. We are living through extraordinary and unprecedented times. Everything is different and Ramadan feels very different this year. In the absence of normality, should we fast as normal this month? Well, yes, of course. Uh, and I guess that fasting is a universal human practice, isn't it? So similar conversations must be having across the board in uh, world religions. I'm sure that if it was Lent, uh, Christians would continue to be fasting in Lent. Uh, Yom Kippur will proceed as normal. But of course, it will be a more quiet, private, uh, domestic affair, because the more public fast-breaking events are simply not going to be possible. So the fast will continue. Fasting is uh, extraordinarily easy. It's just not eating or drinking, having sex, smoking from dawn till dusk, and you don't need to be in a mosque to do that. So yes, I think for the essence of Ramadan, it will be business as usual. And many of us find it a struggle to fast, and in the current climate, perhaps even more so. Would we be seen as weak-hearted or without firm faith if we don't feel up to fasting this Ramadan? Well, of course, if people have medical reasons not to fast or they're pregnant uh, or they're old and they're not supposed to fast anyway... But I think generally there are probably a lot more people who Muslims who fast in Ramadan than who say their five day prayers. It's something that people really do love. And Ramadan is a very special time across the Muslim world and in Muslim communities when day and night are interchanged and night time becomes sort of uh, full of lights and uh, children's games and uh, festivity and additional prayers. And the days are very kind of quiet, a little bit like an old English Sunday, tranquil and rather austere. And that alternation, I think, um, is something that people are really going to miss. So people really look forward to Ramadan. And when it's over or nearly over, they really do find that they miss it. So there may be some people who think that because they can't see their friends in Ramadan, that they're not going to fast. But my suspicion is that you're going to see a kind of uptick in religious observance generally as a result of the, uh, the deprivation of material pleasures, temptations, shopping expeditions, the usual features of our distracted consumer modernity. And as a result, people are going to turn inward 
uh, find themselves less distracted. And it may well be that more Muslims will be fasting this year than has been the case for some years in the past. And for our key workers, we've seen doctors and nurses who are doing 12-hour shifts in hot, heavy PPE or personal protective equipment. You know, should they fast or should they be postponing it? Well, it's always left to the individual and each individual has a different physiology and they know how they cope with the fast because fasting is a different experience from person to person. Some people find they hardly notice it. Others are struggling after only three or four hours without a a cup of coffee. So it's up to them. There is, however, a clear religious principle, which is that you're not allowed to do anything that is bad for your health. So, for instance, you can't do the pilgrimage to Mecca if you're too old and There's all kinds of uh, traditional wise regulations that offer dispensations. But then a lot of people like to do it. And there's plenty of, for instance, footballers in the Premier League who are practicing Muslims and who fast and who continue to play world-class football while fasting. The London Olympics happened during Ramadan and there were thousands of Muslim athletes who were managing the fast um, while maintaining sort of peak performance. But it depends on the individual. It's certainly not a sin not to fast if you really feel that you can't discharge your responsibilities properly. Uh, And in that case, uh, there's simple rules about how you just make up an equivalent number of missed days later in the year. And what about people who live alone or perhaps new Muslims who are having a, a very new Ramadan experience? How should they approach this month uh, at this time? Yeah, I think this is a challenge for us, and we're only beginning to grapple with the extent of it. Uh, The usual Muslim assumption is that everybody lives in a family and has neighbours, networks of mutual support, and the household probably contains three generations. And for very many Muslims in Britain, even, that is the experience. However, there's an increasing number of people who are living alone, for whatever reasons. Sometimes they're single mothers. Uh, Sometimes there are converts. There's maybe 100,000 or so converts in the UK. And we do have a new Muslim group at our mosque in Cambridge. Uh, And some of them are saying, this is going to be a very hard Ramadan because none of my family are Muslims and they don't really like me being Muslim. And uh, what kind of support is available? I'm not sure we have a very good answer for those people, except to remember that you're never really alone. You have to remember uh, the divine nearness and uh, compassion and use this perhaps rather austere and even desolate time as an opportunity to turn within, to discover the richness of the interior horizon and to feel the presence of God. But um, I think we, we admit that the mosques are not going to be very good at reaching out to those people, even with our fancy online offerings, and that there's going to be a lot of people who are going to feel quite isolated this time around. And also, what about those who simply don't fast and who are more culturally Muslim? How connected can they feel to Ramadan in this time? Well, that's a good point, isn't it? Ramadan is curious in that it It is obviously an austere practice. It's quite a severe thing for a whole month during the daylight hours not to eat or drink at all. It's not not an easy thing to do. But then in the evening, if you've been to Muslim cities, you'll see that there's fireworks, festivities, street performances, sugar dolls for children, extra prayers. It's it's kind of fiesta time. Um, I certainly remember this from my, my days in Turkey and Egypt, and I think all Muslim countries have their beloved traditions. So the festive side of Ramadan, I think, will be gone. It's a little bit like 
Christmas, but without the Christmas tree and the decoration and the kind of Santa um, aspect of it, but the religious aspect left in. So for people who are culturally Christian, who might look forward to Christmas because of the turkey and the trimmings, um, uh, Christmas wouldn't really be particularly interesting. But for those for whom it's mainly a religious commemoration, of course, it's something that they will continue to look forward to and may even find that it's been in some way purified from some of the more worldly and perhaps even hedonistic accretions that some cultures lay on these originally quite sort of austere and almost monastic practices. Yes, as you point out, we we find ourselves separated from our communities uh, who can often give us a sense of that religious solidarity, uh, particularly when it comes to the congregational night prayers in Ramadan performed in mosques and community centres. But how can we how can we achieve that spiritual fulfilment while in a state of lockdown? Well, again, every religion recognises the virtue of solitude, meditation, turning inwards contemplation, mindfulness, being a hermit in a sense. Religions sometimes do that to different degrees. I was once hiking in Palestine and uh, spent some time at a a very ancient monastery where the monks very insistently pointed out the caves high in the cliffs where their brothers had entered into a retreat, in some cases decades earlier, and a basket of food would be uh, hoisted up to them on a rope once a day and Eventually, when it came down untouched, they'd know that the brother had died and somebody else would go up and take his place. Um, Buddhism also has traditions of, in some Buddhist traditions, quite quite severe self-abnegation and detachment from the world and the sage sort of stereotypically sitting cross-legged in the cave in the Himalayas is, is a kind of folk uh, representation of that reality in much of Buddhism. Now, in what you might call Semitic religions, Judaism and Islam, there's less of that. There's less of an emphasis on the virtue of celibacy, for instance, in Judaism and Islam compared to, say, Christianity and Buddhism. There is really the monastic life. Uh, They're more communalist religions, and uh, Judaism and Islam in particular do make uh, a big fuss about festive, sacred meals together and the, the family as the basic matrix in which the religious life is to be developed. Um, generally, Muslims and Jews don't head for the hills when seeking God, but try to find God by going through the normal patterns of this world. So it may well be that there's a kind of sort of hermit virtue that is to be rediscovered by many Muslims. And of course, uh, there have been Muslims who've sought solitude and isolation. The sort of medieval Persian dervish who would wander around for years, uh, communing with the animals and praying to God incessantly and singing of the beauties of nature is almost a cliche in, in Muslim literature. And remember also that the religion of Islam begins in isolation. The prophet, before Islam begins, is self-isolating in the famous cave on Mount Hira, the Mount of Light, which has this amazing view. The cave is still there, pilgrims visit it, of the whole majesty of the Valley of Mecca and the Kaaba in the centre. And it was on his own in this kind of almost hermit-like existence that the angel Gabriel came to him and recited to him the first verses of the Quran. So in a sense, Islam begins with the Holy Prophet in a state of self-isolation. So we have a lot of respect for that state. Also, 
During Ramadan, towards the end of Ramadan, a lot of Muslims like to go into the state called Ertikaf, which is a kind of seclusion, which happens in the mosque. So you'll find in a lot of mosques, most mosques in England, people seem to be camping out and just sleeping at the back of the mosque, and they may not leave the mosque for 10 days or so. That also is a kind of hermit-like seclusion, a self-isolation, even though they join in the prayers. So uh, Islam, like other religions, does have quite rich resources of how to deal with solitude, taking a step back from the hurly-burly of the world and turning, uh, making a virtue, really, out of a necessity, which is, I think, the spirit that Muslims should be looking at. Ramadan in, in, in these uh, challenging and, as you say, rather unprecedented times. So perhaps it's like an isolation within an isolation. We're already in this environment, so seclusion is kind of uh, already set up for us in, in a way in these times. Yes, and if I could add that uh, probably we all recognise that after decades of consumerism and our product addiction, it's probably very good for us to experience this kind of detox and just not go shopping and listen to the music and reaching for things that we really don't need and going more often than we need for treats, restaurants, outings, holidays, uh, and so forth. Maybe this is very good for all of humanity. Maybe Providence is, as it were, giving us a, a light smack and telling us, well, go within, rediscover your families, uh, rediscover who you are, uh, reconnect with, with transcendence and stop all of those uh, ridiculous consumer messages that are beamed to us with often quite spiritually disastrous effects by modern society. So I think, yeah, we'll be, as you say, a retreat within a retreat. And I think a lot of Muslims of my acquaintance are really looking forward to the rest of this Ramadan as, as an opportunity really to dig deep, to go inside themselves and to reconnect with the sacred Absolutely. I'm definitely rethinking uh, my kind of lifestyle these days. Um, also, it's interesting to see how online faith has surged. And thanks to social and digital platforms, we've seen the streaming of services which have reassured so many religious communities since the lockdown began. Uh, how do you see this digital aspect function during Ramadan? Well, it remains to be seen. Uh, for the younger generation, it's bread and butter isn't it? Because they're wired anyway, and spend much of their waking lives glued to screens of various sizes. For the older generation, I think it's going to be difficult, because what they value about Ramadan is going to the mosque every evening, uh, hearing the Quran solemnly recited, being in a packed congregation. You know, Usually the mosques are full of thousands of people, and it's a very beautiful and uplifting uh, experience. And it's social. They see their friends, and for retired people in particular, it's, it's central to the experience of the month. Now, all we can do is online, with one or two exceptions. So, for instance, uh, you can Google interesting videos showing mosques in Germany being allowed to give the call to prayer outside the building for the first time. Uh, just to kind of cheer up the communities and neighbours. So if there's church bells, why not the call to prayer? Hasn't happened here yet, but that's something the mosques can be doing. But uh, in terms of shifting, what is actually, when you think about Muslim worship, very collective and very physical, it's a very bodily thing, uh, into the rather abstract and perhaps cold uh, area of cyberspace, uh, we need to ask ourselves what kind of spiritual richness is being lost. There's a certain self-discipline and companionship that comes about when you're in the company of other people who are all there for God and doing the same kinds of things. When we're on our own, sometimes we can get into less appealing habits and can indulge ourselves a little bit more. 
that I think is going to be a danger. But if you look at our new mosque in Cambridge, which is confronting the fact of this closure rather unhappily, uh, for a hundred years, the Muslim community of Cambridge, very diverse, dynamic, little rainbow of different ethnicities, uh, has been striving to build a mosque. This time last year, April 2019, finally we opened our mosque. Great celebration. We had our first Ramadan. Now, just a year later, we have to close it again. Everybody's in self-isolation. We can't go to the mosque. So what do we do to experience the sort of beauty of, of Ramadan when we're just huddled over screens in our bedrooms? Well, the mosque has uh, quite a wide range of programs, online, live-streamed sermons. Uh, the Quran is recited every day. Uh, and actually, it's interesting to see how popular that is. Uh, already, uh, for our midday Quran recital from the Cambridge Mosque, the mosque is empty, just the imam reciting into his mobile. But uh, there's 14,000 people around the world listening to his voice in the Cambridge Mosque, many of them in places like Malaysia. So for the local parish, it may not be so good. But of course, the internet is global. So we're having to recalibrate and think about different horizons. It's less a parish mosque and more a kind of global service uh, for a wired world that we're providing. And we have our own Ramadan TV station 24-7 with Islamic content and singing and uh, documentaries and so forth. So the website is quite a lively hub for, as I say, the younger members of the community. Uh, but for the old timers, I think this is going to be rather an austere and possibly even though Muslims tend to live in families, a rather lonely, even desolating time. And yes, I saw the opening of that most beautiful uh, Cambridge Central Mosque, the Eco Mosque, which um, is utterly you know, breathtaking. Uh, and it's very interesting to know that you have a much wider reach now, and it's a global reach. Do you think that there will be a danger of this kind of virtual community that will make mosques and other places of worship redundant in years to come? Well... Who knows? I think one of the, the glories of religion and one reason why it's associated with so many good outcomes, mental health outcomes, for instance, social outcomes, uh, the building of uh, neighbourhoods and communities, is that it is a place physically for people to come together, uh, actually physically to feel another human body uh, next to you and to, for Muslims, bow and prostrate together. Uh, I think there is a certain kind of healing in that, that uh, you can't experience from a, a screen and I think people always crave that and in our age which is very individualistic and where people tend to get together maybe for football on restaurants or pubs but not really for anything as we would see it higher there is a very real need for people to engage in ritual and ritual is something that is best done I think uh, in congregations and we're already seeing the importance of, of ritual as something that keeps people's spirits up. Uh, there was a piece in the, the journal Scientific American a few years ago on the very real biomedical benefit of rituals in reducing stress and depression. People who regularly practice a spiritual path tend to have much better health outcomes, not just mental health, but also physical health. And our age is an age of, well, some have called it the age of loneliness, uh, where so many people are living on their own, society is fragmenting, uh, the individual is king. But we're not really like that. As human beings, we like to go into a huddle. We're, we're pack animals, we're tribal. And I think that where family and extended family is perhaps less of a reality for people, religious congregations can 
furnish a more important resource than ever, where people actually physically feel that they're with other people. They're drinking tea with each other after going to church, or they're eating samosas together, breaking the fast in Ramadan, or whatever it might be. This is a very ancient, fundamental, natural and healing human experience that is certainly one of the things people most look forward to in Ramadan. And I think that the online type of spirituality really can't rival that and never will. Absolutely. I'll be really missing my own family, big family gatherings where it's very noisy and, you know, just the sharing of food is something that will be lacking this Ramadan. But that spirit that you talk about, the community, um, charity is also a big part of that. And charity is very important in Ramadan. Uh, For Muslim charities, it's normally the busiest time of year with fundraising events and grassroots organisations run things like soup kitchens and uh, for the homeless and different communities are brought together. What can Muslims do to keep that spirit of generosity and unity alive this Ramadan? Yeah, I mean, following the practice of the founder of the religion who was especially generous in Ramadan, it's always been a time of giving, of uh, looking out for the poor. Uh, In Cambridge last year, we had a special iftar, fast-breaking celebration for the Syrian refugee community in Cambridge, for instance, who were very happy that somebody had remembered them and was sending cars and bringing them in and gave them some kind of taste of home. And uh, we do have in the Cambridge Mosque uh, quite a wide outreach program now helping people uh, just to deliver basic staples to them, not just Muslims, but non-Muslims as well, because in this unprecedented situation, there is actually hunger. And even though Cambridge is a global hub, and you'd have thought sort of bastion of prosperity, in fact, Cambridge is one of the UK towns which has the largest wealth disparity. There's a lot of high net worth individuals in Cambridge. There's a lot of people who are really hand to mouth Those people are really suffering more than ever because their jobs are gone and the uh, possibility of getting help from government is a bit hit and miss. And as a result, they're falling back on very traditional things like uh, the, the guy next door or the church or the mosque. And so I think that what we're seeing is a kind of emergency where religion really proves its worth socially as well as spiritually, that we are literally delivering bags of pasta to the front door of little old ladies whose family might be far away. Uh, And I think one of the things that we should look forward to in the post-viral world, whatever else that might look like, is people's really real sense of respect for what religion can do, that religion has this extraordinary capacity to mobilise goodwill and a determination to help people and to step in in what is often a more locally aware and mobile way than government, which tends to be rather bureaucratised and clunky. So, yeah, that will be one of the uh, significant memories, I think, that people have of this crisis, that uh, in a time of almost unprecedented hunger, need, loneliness... It's been the places of worship uh, that many people have experienced as being the most helpful and the most compassionate. And for many, it's also a time of questioning. And one of them might be this. Where is God in this pandemic? Well, it depends on which God you're looking for. Uh, Generally, uh, the experience of the perhaps cross-grained human mind is that we reach for religion when things are less comfortable and particularly when death seems to be around. Uh, If you talk to, as I've done occasionally, carers in hospices and care homes, they'll say almost nobody dies as an atheist. 
basically people see something or they get something or they return to something as they see fame, fortune, status, even family melt away and there's just death there and they do come back to faith. Uh, not many people really die as atheists. Uh, and I think we're already seeing an increasing number of people logging on to church services, mosque services, uh, synagogues as well, because religion gives people a language which enables them to cope with death, rituals which allow them to help with mourning, and of course the wider hope of uh, life after death, which is uh, the greatest possible consolation when you've lost a loved one or when you're really sick yourself. So this is a time, I think, when faith is increasing and people are realising that atheism really was not nourishing people in a way that uh, emotionally, spiritually, is probably essential to the proper functioning of, of, of the human spirit. And, and how should I, as a Muslim, uh, view the crisis? You know, what, if any, meaning can we find in a pandemic like this? Well, we wouldn't be human if we lived in a world that was uh, all beer and Skittles. The world contains roses, and the roses have thorns. Just about every traditional Muslim poem likes to make that point. This is just the way God has set up the world. We might want to say, if I were God, I wouldn't have created this virus, and little babies would never die. There'd be no smallpox and no wars, but we're not God. And it is a kind of hubristic arrogance that makes us think, well, I would do a better job if I was the omniscient, all-knowing, timeless maker of the universe. We can't put ourselves into that, that mindset. This is part of the divine transcendence, ineffability, something which Islam is particularly strong on. Our function is to accept that this is the world that God has made, not to try and understand uh, the divine purposes from the divine mind, which is way beyond any kind of capacity I might have to understand, uh, but to respond to God with patience and gratitude and love and service, but not to puff myself up to think that uh, I know what God must intend by this, because that's clearly absurd. It's th There's a traditional Muslim teaching story about uh, an ant crawling across uh, a mosque carpet, and the ant is reciting these beautiful Persian couplets. A long lament directed against the weaver of the carpet because the carpet has different colours and you have to go up and down and it seems to have been put there just to make life miserable for the ant. But of course the ant just has an ant's perspective and as you get to the end of the poem of course you realise that from the perspective of the carpet weaver and the mosque the carpet is a masterpiece and perfection. So we're like ants, really, when we try to crawl across the carpet of God's world and we grumble and we moan and we wish things were otherwise, but none of that really helps very much. Instead, what religion is urging us to do is to be mindful, to be attentive of who we are, of the miracle of our lives, the unlikeliness of our lives, uh, and the fact that we find a self-transcendence and a love in the service of others and um, admiring the beauties of the natural world. That's what religion is really asking us to do, rather than to empathise with the divine mind, which is, when you think about it, not a very logical thing to do. And Ramadan is seen as the month of mercy. Do you think that uh, this is a mercy, this pandemic is a mercy to the planet? Well, we haven't seen the end game, have we? And it would be perverse to say that it's a mercy to those people who are now gasping in ventilators. Um, there is a certain 
uh, rigor and a toughness in the world, which is part of the way in which uh, it has been textured by the divine inscrutable will. And the meaning of the name of the religion, Islam, is submission, surrender. So we're not about imagining how we would create a better world if we were God, which we're not going to be. Instead, we are working in our little ant-like parochial horizon, trying to make things better, trying to show mercy, trying to experience the beauty and the wonder of it all. Uh, and I think that's a much healthier attitude. And also in terms of the environment, you know, people are saying that, you know, the, the air is clearer, you know, animals are coming out um, into the earth where they belong. Um, you know, do yeah. you think that our balance is being somehow restored, even though it is obviously with the huge consequences. I think that humanity uh, will take away from this the lesson that uh, our pressing so heavily on the ecosystem is ultimately going to destroy us. We don't know exactly the origin of this epidemic, but many have suggested that it has something to do with uh, the destruction of traditional ecosystems, the rapidity of modern transports and other things that have facilitated the generation and the spread of this virus. Another thing we've learned, I think, is that we do go stir crazy if we're just staying at home all day and we need to get out and to see the sky and to see something green and that, I think, is a reminder that conservation is not just about preserving an ecosystem that's useful for us and that provides us with goods and services, but is actually a spiritual nourishment that we actually need to see nature, preferably virgin nature. Otherwise, we, we can't really function properly as human beings. And I think a lot of people are experiencing that as they get out of their flat and take a walk on Clapham Common and they feel some kind of, it is genuinely, the beginning of a spiritual experience when you get that sense of nostalgia for Eden when you're seeing something natural and something growing and feel the wind on your cheeks. And I think that is a lesson that many people are picking up. But whether at the end of this we will have really learnt our lesson and become less materialistic, take fewer flights, buy fewer products, change our phones less often, because we've learnt a lesson, I don't know, humanity is uh, collectively not a very intelligent species, I'm afraid. I fear that sooner or later it's going to be business as usual. We've seen many of the doctors and nurses to have died first from COVID-19 have been Muslims or members of the black and minority ethnic communities. What is the Islamic perspective on those who have died? Well, of course, we believe that God takes back to him the souls that he chooses. And one of the inspiring things uh, nationally and globally, I think, about this uh, crisis has been the selflessness of so many, not just frontline health care workers, but also people who are working in care homes and other care situations, that they are still there almost you know, absolutely in the front line where we would run away holding our breath, wearing a mask. They have to go in to deal with the, the reality of the, the situation and death. And we have seen a lot of heroism. And it was a very interesting story, wasn't it, when the first NHS doctors, nurses, consultants started to die, the first corona martyrs, I guess, that so many of them were actually Muslims. And I see this as a kind of breakthrough moment in the evolution of the history of the British Muslim community, because so many people who don't care about religion and don't know about Islam and are generally anti-immigration will say, oh, the Muslims come to England to throw bombs and to sponge off the NHS. And that discourse is out there and it's widely shared. Uh, that discourse has now been broken 
And those xenophobes, really, uh, a stake has been driven through their heart, frankly, because now, as well as you know, the Manchester murderers and the Westminster Bridge and all of those outrages that are so humiliating to us as Muslims, we have a counter-narrative, which is these heroes. <laughs> they didn't come to sponge off the NHS and to throw bombs. No, they came to save the lives of predominantly white people. And I think that when we know their names and bring them into the debate about immigration, about ethnic difference, about the usefulness of diversity in society, and we show that uh, ethnic diversity is indispensable for the proper functioning of the NHS, which in many ways is the kind of guarantor of, of the health of the nation, many of those arguments, I think, will never look the same again. And there are so many Muslims in those frontline situations. I've led the Friday prayers at the prayer room at Addenbrooke's Hospital here in Cambridge. First time I went, I didn't know who would turn up. And then 10 people turned up, and then 20. And the space was absolutely packed. And they were there in their white coats and their scrubs, and they were there without much time. There must have been about 300 worshipping Muslims who took the time out to say their Friday prayers in this one hospital. And that was quite humbling. And now, of course, unlike me, I'm just an academic sitting at home safely with my books, they are courting death and danger in the front line. And I think that increasingly people are going to see that Muslims are not primarily people with weapons of mass destruction, but people with ventilators and thermometers. And the reality of the Muslim community is that it is here in order to integrate, um, to help, to serve Muslims like those, uh, those career pathways because they have a strong tradition of service and of ethics. And the modern hospital in the Middle Ages was more or less invented in the Muslim world and was then brought into Europe. But the whole tradition of having wards and many of the institutions that we maintain are importations into medieval Europe from the Islamic Middle East because of the nobility of the medical calling in the eyes of the religion. The founder of Islam himself was a healer. People would go to him for remedies. So I think, yeah, we're going to see a different story about immigration, about Muslims in Britain, and people will be a lot more real about the incredible richness and uh, really indispensability of uh, these communities in not sponging off the nation state, but keeping us all alive. So I think that's one of the things we should look forward to in the post-viral world, that people are going to have to be more respectful of the ethnic minorities who are dying in such disproportionate numbers. And as you say, the frontline workers are risking their lives all the time in this pandemic. There's an Islamic notion that those who die of disease or plague should be regarded as martyrs. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah, people, when they think about the concept of martyrdom in Islam, tend to think that it's some suicide bomber or some other uh, outrage. But in fact, the concept is, is very broad, according to the founder of the religion. And it's certainly the case, uncontroversially in Muslim orthodoxy, that those who die of contagious diseases are considered to be shohadat. So during the Black Death in the Middle East, for instance, the muezzins on top of the minarets would console people as the bodies were being collected from the houses, by just crying out, shohadat, 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 which means martyrs, 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 uh, guaranteed paradise. So, yeah, that is uh, not eccentric, but is part of normative Islamic teaching. 
And many of us are seeing a loss of loved ones. There are people who aren't able to even attend the funerals of their family members. What does Islam say about anxiety and grief that, that comes with, with such circumstances? Well, ours is an anxious world, isn't it? So many people suffering from panic attacks, anxiety, depression. Even before this uh, epidemic started, uh, nobody is quite sure why. My own belief is that it has a lot to do with the decline of traditional religious belief that people used to have optimism about life after death. They could feel comfortable about loved ones who'd passed on. They knew that the world was under control because it was in, in God's hands. In our sort of atheistic, materialistic, selfish gene world, there aren't those forms of reassurance. So, yeah, a lot of people do feel very anxious, fearful, and suffering from panic attacks. And very often the self-isolation makes that worse because one of the things that consumer society does, I think, is to entertain us and to distract us so that we don't have to think about deep things. We don't often have to think about death or ageing or loneliness or traumas in our life or the meaninglessness of everything because there's always another thing to look at or movie to see or fashion to to follow now that's been taken away from us effectively we turn in and we're quieter and we confront unless we are people of faith these inner wounds these traumas things that may be from very early in our childhood might bubble up in ways that we've suppressed that now really hurt us so i think that there is a mental health crisis on its way but again i believe that People with a religious certainty, and that's by no means confined just to Muslims, are going to cope with this much better because there's just less fear. Uh, we seem to be facing two epidemics to look at the media. One of the stories is about the virus. The other is about the fear. And this second epidemic, I think, is something that uh, can be brought under control if people just learn to accept the will of God and to accept that death is a natural part of the cycle of human existence and that one moves on to the mercy of the all-compassionate creator. And we can, I think, uh, decompress very successfully if we remember those things. Yeah, and like things, it's very hard for people to process a lot of that grief. So perhaps it it is about reaching deeper into our kind of spiritual consciousness. And lastly, uh, what are your key pieces of advice for us to keep going this Ramadan? How can we stay motivated and manage our anxieties while in lockdown? Well, the name of the religion is Islam, which means surrendering, submitting to the reality of God and his plans for the world. Uh, and I think that we need to get into what uh, the English used to call the state of resignation. In other words, hand things over to God, know that things are in good hands ultimately, even though there's thorns as well as roses. And I think that will help to ease things enormously. Remember that all the basic practices of the religion can be done without a trained religious official. We don't have a priesthood in that sense in the religion. So prayers can be led at home, and that's just as valid as saying prayers in the mosque, although no doubt some of the blessings are gone but it's valid. The fast is just as valid when it's observed at home as anywhere else. It's a uh, non-conformist kind of religion, if you like, in that it doesn't have an organised priesthood. Uh, and every household can establish all the basic practices of the religion. And even online, you know, I've done, uh, since this lockdown started, two online marriages. 
and one online conversion. <laughs> Quite valid uh, canonically. Not ideal, of course. Um, you don't get to hug people uh, or enjoy the wedding feast, but religiously it's perfectly valid. So Islam is one of those religions that can actually work quite well when uh, disaggregated into very small congregations. And I think that uh, if that congregation is usually the household and therefore the family, uh, it's an opportunity to rediscover that most basic human building block, which is the family, something that modern world sometimes has not been very careful of, but is certainly showing its indispensability in this crisis. So, yeah, it's a, uh, still a Muslim community of congregations, but not mosque congregations, but rather family congregations. And let, let's make the most of that and see it as a beautiful thing. Yeah, getting married online, that's, that's a, a new reality. 132 guests, yeah, uh, little screens everywhere prayers and everybody was happy. Yeah, it was a great occasion. That's lovely. And on a final note, how will you personally be spending Ramadan this year? Uh, I hope I will be spending more time with the Quran, which is the, the real feast of the religion and which I find I never tire of. Uh, I will be giving various classes through the uh, mosque website and through the Cambridge Muslim College. I will be talking to people like you, no doubt. Uh, there will be some uh, media activity. There will be the five daily prayers. Uh, there will be the beginning of the fast at dawn with the family and then the ending of the fast at the end of the day, which is always a, a nice bonding family experience. And I think even though it's going to be quiet and we won't be going out, I think I'm really looking forward to it and hoping for some kind of... Uh, spiritual graces during this month, not through my merits, but God is generous and will see people's neediness and inshallah will will bring a kind of fragrant atmosphere of acceptance and closeness to God in this time, which is always a blessed time. Well, I'll certainly be less social and more spiritually focused this year and hope for that fragrance too. Abdul Hakim Murad, thank you so much for sharing your reflections with us today. Thank you. For me, hearing these thoughts brings me a welcome sense of wisdom and insight as I grapple with new challenges to my faith experience in the time of coronavirus. As we encounter a very different kind of Ramadan, perhaps recalibrating and revisiting it from a different perspective can bring its own benefits and blessings, even in a time of lockdown. I'm Ramona Ali, and you've been listening to the Ramadan edition of Things Unseen, the programme for people of all faiths and none, and for those who think there is more to life than the material world. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.